So I made a basic like mushroom broth and I was tasting it and I was tasting it. The chef came in and gave me like a swig of his cold brew. And I still had like a little bit of that mushroom soup flavor stuck on my tongue as I was like taking a swig of the cold brew. And I was like, oh, this works. This is Taste. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Today on the show, we have a really fun conversation with John Kung, a Detroit-based chef and TikTok creator we've fallen hard for over the past couple of years. We wanted to have John into the studio to talk a little bit about TikTok, his life online and off, but mostly we wanted to dig into his terrific new book, Kung Food, Chinese-American Recipes from a Third Culture Kitchen. Man, I really love catching up with John, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. John Kung, welcome to This Is Taste. What's up, buddy? Hey, thank you for having me. It's so great to be here. Man, last time I saw you, we were at the Shinola Hotel in Detroit having having a nice br- a lunch outside. Man, I love your town. Yeah, it, the, you should go back. The building that was across the street from where we were dining, like Al Fresco, is almost done now. It is probably the first major, most impressive building Detroit has seen since probably like the Renaissance Center was yeah. built. <gasps> Yeah, maybe maybe like the the Silver Dome. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. That's like truly one yeah. of the most garish yeah. buildings. Um, I'd love to hear about what's what's your take on what's been going on in Detroit. I, I you know I'm have such pride. I'm from the west side of Michigan, but what's going on in Detroit right now? I mean, it's it's an interesting energy that is happening. Um, the thing that as a Detroiter that's been there for like I don't know where we're going on to like the better part of twenty years now. But there has been so much investment in these cities' outdoor spaces and parks. And I'm a runner. I paddleboard on the Detroit River every summer that I can. I notice these things. And there has just been rollout after rollout of, like, new and grand, like, million-dollar investments in parks and paths. Um, I think Detroit is finally leaning into the fact that it is, like, the biggest city in Michigan, and Michigan is home to, like, some of the most beautiful outdoor spaces and natural, like, uh, natural landmarks in the country. And so the fact that we are actually—we are claiming that— It's just like a beautiful thing. Yeah, it's it's so well said. And, and also on the food scene, you've got this incredible like, you know, pocket, these pockets of, of these cultural neighborhoods and these and these and these chefs cooking their own food. And we'll get into your your mm-hmm. story. But then you've got the farms like you yes. go out 20 minutes and you, you're in some of the most lush farm territory and land. Yes. And we have. And we have Eastern Market, which is uh, the city's, like, jewel of a farmer's market district. I think it is, like, the oldest mm-hmm. – it, it's the oldest, largest, continuously running uh, farmer's market district operating in the United States. I think it has that title so long as you use all those words. <laughs> and <laughs> and, uh, and people have, like, the, a really good connection. Like, even though Detroit is a very just – large city, like a deeply dense urban area, our connection with food and farmers access or access to farmers in that way via the market itself is very in tune, mm-hmm. I think. And then we have like tons of urban farms oh, yeah. that has been pop that have been popping up since like two thousand and I wanna like say 
nine or ten, and they have been continuously running since then. So I think there is a deep connection to food. There is still like a little bit of I think an underappreciation for the local produce, but it's really quickly becoming more I guess sophisticated yeah. in a way. Absolutely, and and when you head west too, you've got. Fruit, yes, which Abra Barons and I have talked about at length. I'll link to that in the show notes. I feel like the West Side and like the Fruit Belt of Michigan is underrepresented. I mean, do, oh, you, sure. do you feel that you cook a lot with the local with the fruit that's yeah. in Michigan? So I think like. I've, I really like my, my appreciation for apples really kicks in. For me, I'm very much like grapes in the summer. Yeah. And in the, in, the, in the fall and winter, I, I'm all about apples. And people think that apples generally tend to be a pretty boring fruit. But of course, they're thinking of like the red delicious apple. Yeah. But then if you get into like heirloom varietals of apples, if you start eating uh, like have cider apples, for example, like they have such complex flavor and such like a super satisfying texture to just bite into like mm -hmm. that crisp and that crunch. Um, I think apples are something that, you know, obviously Michigan cherries, you think of that. Yeah. Um, very short but, season though. Yeah. Very short season. Uh, comes like, like a flash in the pan, but apples, man. Yeah. I just, and of course you got like cider and cider donut season. No, it's, it's the best apples. Thanks for, for calling that one out. Okay. So you're pushing 40 and you're big on TikTok. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is first off. Yes. Very. I, I hear that. I love that. I'm here for that. But second, like, what's that like? I mean, you're, you're definitely not in the demo for that platform, but you've excelled on that platform. It's been very interesting. I think after, I think this is my third or fourth year in this career as a person in social media or a new media content creator. And I just walk around in life now just expecting to be the oldest person in the room. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, in the real world, that is not true. Like at 39, like I'm not, I'm not always the old, but like I feel that way. So I don't know. I think I have this warped view on what age is at this point. And I do have like peers who are also content creators, like the Korean vegan. She is slightly old. She's like my big sister. Mm -hmm. But yeah, no, it, it, it's working, working with and, and communicating constantly with like what I always can only assume as a younger audience because I don't see them most of the time. Just like we interact through comments and stuff. Um, I don't know. It, 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 I guess it must it, it must have had a change in me mentally that I was just not prepared for. But I think it happened so gradually that I just didn't know. You didn't even notice it. But yeah. you, you clearly rolled with it, too. And like your voice um, doesn't age stamp you at all. Yeah. You obviously don't recognize, you know, your age in, in a way. Yeah. Well, I'm definitely not going up there and being like, well, hello, fellow kids or anything <laughs> like that. But I will say I think there are a lot of people on TikTok or no, especially YouTube, they assume that I'm much younger than I am because one of the most common <laughs> negative comments that I get is that these people are like, they, they call me pretentious very much a lot. Really? Uh, yeah. And I just I don't, don't think that. they see them. They, huh. I just think that if they assume that I'm like in my twenties and like, if you're like this self-assured and probably just a little bit tired and sleepy in your twenties, <laughs> you're just, you just come off as pretentious, That's but like, <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm almost 40. Like, yeah. you know, this it's is... funny how how like wisdom and like confidence reads as pretension for a certain age. Right. Very... <laughs> do you use words like fire? Do you use fire? I do not. Okay. Do you use like torched? <laughs> uh oh, I do use torch. Well, I do use these things in cooking context, but oh, like yeah. I don't say. Do people say torched? Well, torched outside of is a twenties lexicon for like like stale or old or 
dusty. Oh, I don't know any of this. I, I mean, thank God, yeah. John. <laughs> um, I, I used I used uh, a fire in in a previous episode of the podcast, and my wife was. Um, in the car while we were listening to it, and she like was like, "Stop the car, <laughs> cringe, stop using fire." Yeah. So I have to say on the record that I'll probably not use fire. Again. Yeah, I think like for me, fire is just like a term that you use on the line and torch is something that you associate with creme brulee. <laughs> well said. It's totally more cooking term. Yeah, uh, John, I want to ask about the book and like how do you come to the realization that it's time to write a book. You're very you're very articulate with with your progression from a chef to a creator and I feel like you didn't want to rush things, but clearly you decided this was the time. Uh yeah, um the decision <laughs> it well the way that the book came to be was like a lot of things just fell in place. I never thought for myself uh that I would write a book like if when I was still cooking, the idea of writing a book was not something that I would think that I would be doing until I was like maybe 50, 60 years old, mm-hmm. a couple of restaurants under your belt. Hopefully they did well enough that people yeah. would care enough. But, you know, at this time, just because of the newfound fame through TikTok, YouTube and Instagram, um, the book deal came first. The book deal came before any restaurant that I was even preparing to build. So... I mean, you don't pass up an opportunity like that. So it, it, it presented itself through uh, an editor, uh, Raquel, at Clarkson Potter. Pelzel, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She just, she sent me an email after a Zoom meeting involving two different authors um, asking if I was interested in writing one. And in, after that, she hooked me up with a couple of agents. I selected one. I wrote a book proposal and we sent it back and they accepted it. It was probably not the most um, traditional path towards a book, um, I would say, but... Well, maybe now it's pretty. It really, it's, it's more and more common for say, people John, who are on it's TikTok now. It's definitely how we roll here at, at Crown, at Clarkson Potter, and Ten Speed, yeah. and speak about those here specifically. I've, I've done books outside of of this company as well, mm-hmm. and like I love the way Raquel and other editors here work. They reach out because they they love you and your content. It's and almost like which, a scouting of talent in a way, and then like building it based off of that. Um, yeah. And. I see it happening with a lot of other content creators and the books that they make, the beautiful books that they make. And yeah, it, I'm just very happy to be here. Yeah, well, <laughs> we're going to get into the book now. And and really, John, I love this book. I think there it's this got so many wrinkles in here. You've got this the writing is crisp. The writing is is meaningful. It's not like you phoned anything in. Like I I just keep diving into it. I've had it for several months and I've had the PDF and had the physical copy and you really just got to go check out this book. It's really fresh. Uh, I want to start and ask about fusion mm-hmm. and quote, nobody wants their food labeled fusion, which is funny because that is what most American chefs cook, myself included. This is a quote from the book. Yeah. Really well said. I'd like to get into this a little bit because I think you have a lot to say about it. I think fusion became just, uh, it became such a like, not I want to say taboo, but people didn't really think too highly of any food that labeled itself fusion, especially in the after the 2000s. Like, it was a mm-hmm. big thing in the maybe, like, 70s, 80s, and 90s. And the food that came, like, was of that, like, the term Asian fusion, it was so generic, and it was so based off of, like, an outsider's point of view of what to do yeah. with the Asian ingredients, which is, like, you know, super, turns out to be superficial use of a technique or that ingredient itself. It was always one-sided, and it came from the perspective of usually a white male 
chef, just, you know, playing around with soy sauce or yeah. teri- oftentimes teriyaki sauce <laughs> or um, spicy mayo or that kind of thing. Uh, so, you know, I don't think a lot of people wanted to be associated with that. And certainly a lot of people who cooked, who came on later in the scene when like a lot of Asian cooks um, came up, they didn't want their food to be labeled as fusion because in their mind, it was just like poor use of the ingredients that they loved. Yeah, because it was being done so poorly. Yeah. This fusion cooking. But yeah. as you, you write, it's evolved and yeah. it's how we cook today. Yeah. No, it's. If you look back in food and uh, in the history of a recipe and the history of of ingredients and how they travel throughout the world, like every food, every dish, every cuisine in some way, shape and for, or form is fusion in a way. If you look back enough, it's all fusion. I agree. You then kind of pivot into a conversation about third culture cooking, which I think is a more articulate way to talk about fusion. Mm-hmm. So John, let's talk about third culture cooking and how does that represent your style of cooking? Uh, well, third culture cooking, well, it, it comes from uh, the term of a third culture person or a third culture kid. And in that is somebody who grew up uh, constantly moving in between cultures within their everyday lives. So the culture of their parents or whoever raised them, the grandparents, whatever, and then the culture of the world outside of their home in which they were raised. So a kid that went to school every day experienced the culture of somebody. Maybe they were a Mexican-American family or Vietnamese-American family. The culture that they had at home was very much different from the culture that they experienced when they went to school or not. Mm-hmm. And that day-to-day interaction and that day-to-day immersion just gives you access to like nuances of things and with things like communication, certainly food, certainly art and entertainment. Mm -hmm. Um, And it it is something that it's a lived experience. And that translates, I think, so strongly in different kinds of expressions. Certainly, I first saw it in a lot of fashion, a lot of visual art mediums. And more recently, um, including through my book, it being expressed through food as well. Let's give you an example then of how you personally lived a third culture, your own background, mm-hmm. and the, 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 you're talking about the two communities that you were you know, pulled between. Yeah, so I had, like my childhood was spent between Hong Kong and, and for a large part in Toronto. And yeah, the culture that I had in my home was very much that of like Hong Kong Chinese. I like the type of food that I had when I was at home was like, Spam fried rice, fried chicken wings with that were marinated in fish sauce, uh, Hong Kong borscht, those type of stews and stuff, and congee. But then when I go to school, like it's that almost like that big fat Greek wedding trope. All yeah. I wanted, all I wanted in life was a a ham and cheese sandwich, but I was taking thermoses of of cup noodles of of, of noodles, yeah. um, which people back then were even like grossed out by the fact that I was eating instant noodles from a thermos. Yeah. And now they they have like subscriptions to like the instant ramen. Of course. And now everybody wish they had the issue one of Lucky Peach the ramen issue. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Which I do. You do? I was talking to somebody uh, about issue one. She had like three through seven and then some of the teens. You got issue one. I have every single issue of that. No way. (laughs) We just had Chris Ying on the show. I never actually asked him about if he has a collection. But do you go back to those and read Lucky? Um, I'm actually afraid to touch them now. <laughs> <laughs> It'll get you, uh, yeah, maybe retirement. Right. Um, 
Well, John, thanks for sharing the, the the way the book is your background and how the like a little bit of context for what third culture cooking is. Um, I want to ask about the Hong Kong borscht. Uh, mm-hmm. Specifically, you have a great recipe, and I was just intrigued by this idea of Hong Kong borscht. What is it? So Hong Kong borscht, people think that it is something that I came up with, but it is actually a very traditional Hong Kong dish with like an amazing story. So not it's not just my recipes that I consider to be third culture, but it is also a collection of recipes that have that are in their very nature third culture. But it is just it. These recipes have just existed before the term existed. So Hong Kong borscht was made by, obviously, you know, borscht was created by the Ukrainians who traveled through to Russia. Well, through the periods of political unrest, these chefs would travel from Ukraine to Russia to down into Shanghai. Unfortunately, that they had their turn in civil unrest. So they eventually migrated to Hong Kong. And how that uh, dish kind of uh, changed was they just really wanted to maintain the redness and I think the tartness mm. that came innate in borscht. Uh, but unfortunately, like, we weren't very big on beets in China. But what we did have was, for some reason, tomatoes. Mm. So the red and the sourness came from the tomatoes and the it went from this creamy pureed uh, soup into like a very brothy beef based with vegetable stew. And it was something that you could see in the 80s in Hong Kong at like tea shops and right next to a corn chowder type style soup that we have there as well. And it was like an iconic dish. I had it coming home from school all the time. It's not an easy one. It's not an easy thing to do when you're cooking oxtails. Everything always yeah, takes a takes ton a minute. of time. Um, but it was delicious and it was hearty and it was tart and yeah. just as red. And it just played into like what these traveling chefs did to appease the local population, but also did the best they could to remind them of home. How do you, what's the tartness? What's the acidity in the dish? It comes from the tomatoes. The, so the tomatoes, yeah, yeah. is there any vin in there at all? Or is it is it just from the tartness from the tomatoes? Oh, you could add some if you yeah, want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, gotta, I gotta tackle this. It yeah, looks- it's great. And there's also like an Instapot version of it in the book, I think. Yeah. Um, I know there are like a couple of really, really involved like stovetop, like five hour on the stovetop recipes. I tried to also include it in like a more accessible way yeah. to get that done. It's cool. This book is just the recipe writing and they just jump off the page and I have a few more questions. One is the coffee mushroom broth, <laughs> which is super inventive. Yeah. It's a savory coffee, but I, I'm curious when you actually serve it because it's it's really cool. Talk about it, what it is and when you serve it. So I was going through this kick and by when I say kick, I mean like <laughs> the studio that I lived in at the time um, did not really do a very good job in maintaining heat <laughs> in the building. So yeah. we would constantly wake up to like 40, a room that was oh, 40 yeah. or 50 February degrees. In Michigan too. Yeah, it was yeah. terrible. So I started making, I started this idea of just making broth and soups for drinking in the morning um, a, as a way to wake up and as a way to warm up. So I started making breakfast broths. And how that particular soup came to be was I was working at a restaurant called Gold Cash Gold in Detroit at the time. And I was just put in charge for this, I think, event that we were doing of just like making a vegetarian or vegan option broth. And so I just used what we had at at the restaurant. We had like a bunch of dried mushrooms. We had a bunch of vegetables. So I made a basic like mushroom broth. 
And I was tasting it and I was tasting it. And then I like the chef came in and gave me like a swig of his cold brew. Mm. And I still had like a little bit of that mushroom soup in like flavor stuck on my tongue as I was like taking a swig of the cold brew. And I was like, oh, this works. And so let's give this a try and see like how far I could take this. And so um, I was doing my own dinner series for a birthday later on, I think the next uh, few months later. And so I just made like a coffee broth. Mm-hmm. Like, I, and I, I'm always, I've always been into like drinking broths out of mugs. Um, and so I made one that was almost like a, a, a mushroom cappuccino with like a pea milk foam on top. And I used like a morel mushroom grated on top so mm-hmm. it looked like chocolate. And the people were like... They were blown away. So this is kind of like, I guess, a diner coffee version of yeah, that. Yeah, with like the diner mug yes, style of the photo. Which I love. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they, they, it is part of a groups of broths that were, are meant to be made over the course of the day, but then kept in the fridge to be warmed up in the morning for you to drink in the morning. Very cool to have a savory breakfast yeah. with a little bit of caffeine kick in there. Yeah. Really inventive stuff. We were talking before off mic about last night you cooked at Bonnie's and you did a wonton flight. Yes. I like to get into wontons. You have this fried curry lamb wonton and he uses cream cheese. And I, I want to get a sense of what the cream cheese is doing and, and what how you think about wontons. Yeah, so like wontons, rangoons, and fried dumplings in general, I uh, just, you know, like the, with the history of the fried wonton and the fried rangoon, um, it was... Almost like an outsider's romanticization and completely inaccurate <laughs> uh, perception of what Chinese food was. Like, as we know with the Rangoon, it was like probably more along the lines of something the Polynesian. Mm-hmm. But um, it became something that was so beloved in this city that and so expected of Chinese American food that we I just like figured, well, let's just we all leaned into it. We might as well continue leaning into it because it is absolutely delicious and so much fun to eat. And so me going into these fried dumplings and seeing like how far I could take it and how far I could like bring it into kind of like the inclusion of what our culinary like zeitgeist i would say is now which is thinking very diversely very globally like curry yeah Yeah. with the curry elements um and just like you know kind of cooking things with the i cooking things with the intention of serving it to other people in the sense that like they might be familiar with it or appreciative of it as well like that that's really the reason behind all of that how do you make a wonton then in, in essence? Um, is it, what? how does a cream cheese play into it? Just like what's the food chemistry there? Cause it's, oh, it's, it just holds it all together. Yeah, it's it just, just creamy and it's just gooey and it's just delicious, yeah. And oh. of course, like, you know, cre- any kind of creamy ele- element mixed in with the flavors of curry is just yeah. amazing. It's really like curry mayo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's yeah. so good. Um, I love that you have a section for wontons and rangoons. Yeah. It's, it's, it's amazing. Um, Walk us through Fago orange chicken, <laughs> which inclu- it's a tribute to orange chicken or the, the Chinese American takeout orange chicken, but also one of a Michigan's greatest exports, which is Fago. Right, right. Mostly people from Michigan and maybe some Juggalos wouldn't understand. Oh my I'm gosh, you had to, you had to reference the Juggalos. I mean. I know they're the ones that would be like the most excited to make this probably. Do you the drink way- rock and rye once in a while? Every now and then. Actually, I have a friend. Uh, uh, in, in, in 
he's the chef at a restaurant called Takoy, and he makes rock and rye ribs, and th- those are delicious. Yeah, oh, yeah. Soda ribs, like Dr. Pepper ribs, rock and rye ribs, yes. so good. I'd never actually had the uh, Panda Express uh, orange chicken until probably, I want to say, like 2021, 2020 sometime. And I knew, I understood it to be like an iconic Chinese takeout dish. And when I tried it, I, you know, it, it's sweet, it's savory, it probably hits the spot for a lot of people, but as a cook and as an appreciator of of Chinese cuisine, it was kind of like one note, but yeah. it was fine. Um, and, uh, and so I did a little bit of research and I looked in to see like where this could have possibly come from. And it might have origins, I think, and I wrote this in the book, it might have origins in like Hunanese cuisine, where it was just like a stir-fried dish using orange peel, and it was much spicier, and it was a lot, obviously, a lot less sweet. So I wanted to do something in combination with that, but I also, as I like to do, want to include my surroundings and locations and pay homage to where I am in that specific point in time when I do it. And around the corner from me is DeVries, a 100-year-old cheese shop in Eastern Market, and I know that they sell Fago there. Um, out of the glass bottle still. Oh, wow. Yeah. and but That's uh, how I grew up drinking it. Right. Yeah, I love those. <laughs> Instead of bottles. like the two later plastic ones. Yep. But, so I bought a couple of ones of those and I was, was like, how? And like my mission was to incorporate the Fago in a meaningful way. Also, Fago orange chicken just sounds like it works. Oh, yeah. So it is spicier. It is a little more balanced. It is obviously a lot more time consuming than just getting takeout. Mm-hmm. So if that is... You know, if that is more your speed, by all means, enjoy yourself. But yeah, this was something that I just wanted to kind of bring uh, to create a dish that was um, home for me in multiple ways. It's cool because you're you're doing the marinade first and then you're mm-hmm. frying it using a dredge and a batter or some of that sort. And then you're making your your glaze. Right? Yeah. You're tossing yeah. It, yeah. In a wok. Yeah. Which is a very, like, standard way to make, like, your Chinese takeout fare, which is a lot of it is just, like, dredge batter fry and then toss it in a sauce. Yeah. I did, there are a couple of recipes that are like that, such as, like, the Canadian ginger beef that's in there, uh, mapo paneer that is in there. So if you learn that technique, know that you're not just doing it for one recipe. But it is also a technique that can take you really, really far because a lot of takeout places it's, cook with that specific And as way. we know, you can do a lot of it ahead. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. You could fry ahead and then just toss you right. know, to order. Or even just make the sauce the day before. Make all the sauces yeah. the day before those hold. I mean, for a dinner party, who doesn't want Fago orange chicken? Orange chicken. Yeah, right. <laughs> super good. As an aside, um, what's your take on Detroit pizza? Oh, it's superior. Love it. <laughs> I mean more. Let's just go. <laughs> yeah. Let's get some let's get some yeah. some tape. We used to be like better representation of it outside of the city though. I have been to a couple of non-Detroit specific chains. Um I think like I haven't had one here and it was just fine. Mm. I mean, and I don't want people to think that it was like, oh, it's not one of those things where like, like Chicago has got great Detroit style pizza. <laughs> it does. And um, I think 
New York has jets here. We have a jets. I walked by and it looked like the whole window was smashed. Oh so that no, was a bad look for jets. But we have a place called Emmett's that's supposed to be pretty good. Okay, for Detroit style. Yeah, but yeah, we have a jets here, man. Yeah, totally. And people should people should definitely like experience that. I I feel like they would they would be a reliably good source of Detroit style pizza because like we enjoy jets back home. Oh, so, definitely. Yeah. Jets night is a great night, and there's buddies, of course. Of course. Yeah. What about like local like one offs, two offs? Do you have any of those spots in mind? Um, we do go out for buddies when we do. Just mostly, it's mostly a proximity thing. We yeah. We like to go very far, which totally. means we generally just order Jets. I like ordering Jets pizza in because it is a very good Detroit-style pizza, but I can also, like, put my own chili oils and stuff on top of it. 100% free. <laughs> I love I love a condiment. We, we can talk about ranch, yeah. too. Ranch is, ranch is pretty great. Yeah. But I want to hear a little bit, now that the book is out, and you're, you know, you're doing the, the tours and you're you're out in the world— um, but I know that was such a big commitment. Is there a thought that you're going to reboot your Eastern Market pop-ups? Because I, I, I just jealously would love to attend one. Because they, they looked so great. And just like retroactively looking at the, like the menus you were doing and some of the video content, I just, it's amazing. Yeah. The problem with that is, is like the building that where I filmed all that content, where I did all those dinners right now. It, it It is like a sad story, but not, it's not the end of the story of that building. But it was in half construction. It was like in half demolition of mm. becoming a full-fledged restaurant before the pandemic hit. And it just got like too expensive to continue on with yep. that plan with the things that are going on now. And also, I'm really busy. So it is in the far, like in the grand scheme of things, something that I would like to bring back. Um, but maybe like... In the a, a little bit farther out in the future, yeah. So you bring. What about like a restaurant though? Is there like opening a, a restaurant? Yeah, you're like, <laughs> I love your reaction. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. I, I mean, <laughs> it's. I understand how hard it is now. I, well, I've always had a good understanding of yeah. how hard it is to run a restaurant, and so. I will still like say with my full chest that this is an easier job, mm-hmm. and so I I am happy to do this. One Respect for now. it, absolutely. Yeah. That is a, such an honest take. It's, yeah, it's it's the restaurant industry is impossible. Yeah, I feel like I'm still tired from my time there. John, on this is taste. We ask guests about their discerning taste. So to close this interview, here's a little rapid fire, fast and furious taste check. Are you ready? Oh God, okay. <laughs> Your favorite Detroit only food. My favorite Detroit only food. Does Detroit style pizza count? I feel like we've covered that. We covered that. So let's so go to the another next Another thing that I do like to bring people to when I'm when they come in town and stuff, like we do love the Coney. The Coney. Um, I love the Coney and I do love as a hangover meal. I do love like the Coney chili on top of fries with a fried egg on top of it. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it runs all over the fries. Yeah, for sure. I feel like that's an underrated use of the egg. Oh, absolutely. I love a runny egg on top of some fries. It's like a poutine kind of take it kind, on it. It's, it's giving Coney poutine. Giving yeah. Coney poutine. The best morning pastry with coffee. Oh, I'm more of a tea drinker. Or to a tea. Okay, so uh, I'm only going to say this because I'm in New York right now and it's one of the things that I crave, but uh, I love a good sponge cake and I really like spongies in Chinatown and that goes mm-hmm. really well with the tea and I do like a fancy pastry with a coffee. I do like a pain chocolat or something like that, but I'm also the type of person who prefers like a cheap diner coffee and while I'm here, I'll do a bacon, egg and cheese with it. So good. Yeah. It's, it's always a New York move. Yeah. Any other restaurants or, or, or foods you're, you're picking up in New York that, that you're here? Um, 
obviously, we, I got to finally eat at Bonnie's. And yep. that was, you know, it was easier to write a book and have your <laughs> launch party there than it is to get a reservation. Yeah, it's so true. With, and they deserve that 100%. And then, like, fun omakase, like an omakase here and there. Yep. And, uh, Bagels every day. Uh, every day. You yeah. gotta, do, you have a, do you have a bagel spot? The place that is close to my hotel is called Bagels and Schmear. And yeah. it is truly, like, it is It is good. It is good. But, like, you know, I will venture out to go to Baz's. I think it's on the lower east Yeah, Baz's. Absolutely yeah. Baz Bagels. The best dessert. The best dessert. Ooh. Um, after a meal... It would be an ice cream of some kind. I do like a fun ice cream or like a a fun flavored ice cream, like a buckwheat or a green tea. But if it was like going out for dessert, I do like those Taiwanese like uh, tapioca pearls, hot grass jelly soups. They're not too sweet, which is the oh, best man. compliment an Asian person can give to a dessert. Um, with like the red bean and stuff like that. I, I love that. And Especially pumpkin. now that it's getting cold. That's like oh, all I want. Oh, it's hot too. Yeah. yeah. A hot dessert is, yeah. We, I mean, we can't go wrong. The best bread? Uh, Vietnamese baguettes. 100. So is there a, a bakery in Detroit that you like to go to? No. Or, or <laughs> I just had, I had a banh mi in, when I turned 30, in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still am chasing that go, the ghost of that memory of the best bread experience that I ever had in my life. Something about the freshly baked bread on a, a banh mi in it's country in Vietnam is something amazing. Something about the airiness. It yep. was like a baguette cloud that retained yep. all the chew, all of the crunch crispiness, but at the same time it was just like it it it, it was it was like a cloud. Yeah, I, that's 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 all. Yeah, it didn't like overshadow the you know the condiments. Or the it meat. didn't. But yeah. then at the end, like after I had the sandwich itself, I asked for like a loaf of just oh. the bread, and I just ate that. Oh man, damn, that sounds great. Yeah, <laughs> the most underrated piece of kitchen equipment. Um, I would say, I really like my ceramic grater. Um, for like garlic or spices or ginger specifically, like I do not like to use. The microplane for these for the mm-hmm. they're just hard to clean and everything and this is just like this gorgeous little white dish that just minces everything so beautifully. Mm-hmm. I don't see them in a lot of restaurants um, or I, in a lot of kitchens, and I think like it would save people a lot of grief and a lot of time, and also it lasts a lot longer. Yeah, I love the ceramics. It's also easier to clean. Yeah, yeah, it's so much easier than the microplane. Yeah, the most overrated piece of kitchen equipment. Oh, I would say the microplane. Yeah, right on. <laughs> Sorry, microplane. Yeah. Not getting kudos on this on this one. Your favorite cookbook of all time? Ooh. Oh man. I can say I've probably referenced or gone back and looked up Harold McGee's on on food and cooking mm-hmm. more than any other time any other book. I don't think that is that may, would automatically make it count as my favorite, but it has probably done the most to educate it's me. You've gotten the most mileage in your kitchen. Yeah, yeah, it's a great book. What about a favorite recent cookbook discovery? So uh, a book that I just picked up yesterday is My Everyday Lagos by Yuande Kumalafe. Oh, and yeah. I went to her pop up yesterday for lunch, and uh, the soup and the suya 
beef was were just like immaculate so so very good i love that you call that book out and we had yuende on the show recently what a great book yeah and it's just vibrant and like just a beautiful stunning thing every like one page after another yeah terrific terrific choice i love that couple more your favorite vegetable my favorite vegetable oh man um Can it be like a fruit that you cook like a vegetable? Sure. Why are we not? gonna get to? Are you gonna ask me my favorite fruit? No, afterwards? we're not gonna go fruit. We're only oh, gonna go veg. okay. Well, then, like you know, it is a fruit, but a tomato. Yeah, <laughs> it's a good one. Yeah, but you, it's hard to find a good one. It is hard. Oh well, unless they're canned. I mean, yeah, unless they're canned. But you know, we just came out of Michigan summer, so we had plenty. Yeah. yeah. Favorite use of a tomato? Um, sandwich. Yeah. I think that is the expected answer. For it's such a good choice. Point. Last one, your favorite sandwich. Uh, tomato sandwich. You just you just killed two with one <laughs> yeah. stone. I love it. Uh, so let's unpack that. Hard <laughs> cheese, soft cheese. What's the condiment? Mayonnaise or not? What's the bread uh, choice? Okay, so like like the classic tomato sandwich, which is like the white bread, a thick, nice heirloom tomato, salt, pepper, and mayonnaise. Like that hits. But, and it's it's what most people understand to be the the best way to eat the tomato sandwich but the the beauty of it is is like it is in every form like just an accessible thing to make and eat so i went through this period of time where i made a different kind of tomato sandwich every day for 3 weeks because i had like a very robust tomato uh <laughs> plug in my csa and so i was like experimenting with different kinds and i think we had decided that like a grilled sourdough with um, a specific type of tomato called the striped German tomato, salt and pepper on top of that with the curry mayo um, where you like fry a little bit of curry Mm -hmm. powder in some ghee and then you mix that in with a mayonnaise. Like that one is really good. Really good. Yes, really good. Probably our favorite. Um, But close second was... (laughs) A caviar tomato sandwich. Oh, wow. Yeah, made with a brioche, with also grilled brioche. And instead of mayo, we used creme fraiche. Yep. And it was also, and that was made with a brandy wine tomato. Yeah, creme fraiche and caviar on a grilled brioche. With t- yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Wow, so good. I feel like you're in the sandwich, like, headspace right now. I am. I am. It's it's very easy to do in the summer. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. The book is Kung Food. John Kung, thank you so much for joining This Is Taste. Oh, thank you for having me. Always great to be here. This Is Taste is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening. 